Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. We're now coming to the end of another year. What were the biggest stories in education this year? What stories didn't get as much attention as maybe they should have? And what should we expect from next year? For our year in review episode, I invited three stellar education journalists onto the show. Laura Meckler of the Washington Post, Linda Jacobson of the 74, and Goldie Blumenstick of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Laura, Linda, Goldie, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Nice to see you. All right. So I asked you all to kind of prep a little bit for this show and just sort of think in the year in review. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, were kids in K-12 schools masking at the beginning of this year? Because, man, that seems like a long time ago. And these year in reviews really make you cast back. But one of the first questions I wanted to ask was, in your view, what do you think was the biggest story in education this year? Laura, can you kick us off? Sure. I actually have two, but I'm going to just pick one and we'll see if the other comes up from somebody else. I think that, you know, you still have to start with the biggest story, even if it isn't the newest story, which is COVID damage and recovery. Um, You know, that is good. And it's going to be with us for a while. It may, attention may, on this subject may wane, but the fact is that, like you said, I mean, <laughs> at the beginning of this year, we were still really um, just really right in the first, quote, normal year post-COVID, and it wasn't really normal at all. Um, if you think of back to this year, the schools had enormous, um, and I'm speaking mostly of K-12 schools, had just enormous struggles over the course of last academic year, which, of course, was part of 2022, and really this year we've seen the more of a normal year, but the recovery piece is there. We've learned a lot about where the gaps have been and where the losses have been. And I think that that just has to be at the top of the list. Goldie, you mostly cover higher ed. What do you think was the biggest story of the year? Can I have two as well? Fair enough. Okay. My uh, number one story, well, actually one sort of more institutional and one's more public. I think the loan forgiveness discussion, um, obviously the Biden plan to discharge the student loans for like 40 million people and the ups and downs and the where that goes. And of course, the story isn't over yet because now that forgiveness um, proposal goes to the Supreme Court in February. I think that was one of the biggest stories that was much more consumer oriented, student oriented, in effect, um, or former student oriented, maybe more appropriately. The story that keeps on giving, right? Well, yeah, it's been going on, you know, some version of it has been going on since the beginning of the pandemic. And then the second bigger other big story in my mind, and it has a lot of ramifications that tie back to K-12 as well, is sort of the uh, enrollment declines in higher ed. Um, There's been, as the uh, people might say, it's been a little bit less worse in 2022 than it was in 2021, but it continues a trend that actually began in, you know, 10 years ago. And whether higher ed will and how it will recover from that to me is another big story. Maybe that's the tagline for the year. A little bit less worse. Uh, (laughs) Linda, what's your biggest story? Well, I will uh, offer two as well, uh, since that seems to be the thing. Um, The first one I would say would be Uvalde. It will change that community forever. And, you know, we just went through, obviously, the the 10-year anniversary, you know, for the Connecticut tragedy. and, And we'll be 10 years from now talking about Uvalde. It led to, you know, a very divided Congress coming together around, you know, a gun reform bill that likely would not have happened 
if, you know, that tragedy hadn't been there. Uh, the second thing that I would mention in it, you know, is related to what Laura said about just the continuing fallout from the pandemic is chronic absenteeism that we continue to see in districts, you know, as high as 30, 40% in some places, you know, that's where some of the relief money is going to try to get kids back on course. But, you know, is that a new normal, you know, in, in some places? I agree. I've gathered a lot of data over the pandemic on these things. And the chronic absenteeism is the next thing I think uh, worth looking at. Laura, you got shortchanged. Everybody else came with two, but you only came out with your first one. I, I, I would say, hey, I'm a rule follower. Uh, you and are I want this reflected on my report card at the well, end of the Well, it's appreciated. It's appreciated. All right. So no one said my second. So I will say what my second, my second one was, is, is the education culture wars. Um, book banning and conversations about how transgender students should be treated um, in general, sex ed, social emotional learning, um, continue in the, its spillover into politics. All of that, I think, is has been a, an enormous story in 2022. One of the hard things about tracking a lot of these stories is that there's just no good borders on them, right? Like you can say, well, it's the it's the COVID pandemic and that bleeds right into the chronic absenteeism and it kind of blurs together. Uh, you know, I track this stuff for a living and it is hard for me to kind of like map these barriers and when things come up. Let me ask you, looking over the past year at your peers' work and other reporters' work, was there a piece that you thought, man, I wish I'd written that story or something you thought that was just an exemplary piece over the past year? Goldie, can we start with you? Yeah, actually, there was one. It's not that old. It's from. It's been within the last month or two. The New York Times has been doing this big series on the gaming industry, on the um, the uh, you know the online betting, and they did a story about the number of colleges that have been started making deals with these online gaming companies, you know, online betting, sports betting, and I think there was about a dozen colleges, and it just made me. I mean, first of all, I was sort of shocked to read that. I hadn't realized that was going on. I think it was very well documented, um, and it harkened back to me the stories that, you know, the Chronicle and others have written over the years about the deals that colleges had been making first with credit card companies and then with debit card companies and then, you know, and student loan companies even before all that. So it just seems like I mean, there's always an effort to sort of, you know, put new regulations on some of these relationships. And then, of course, a new industry comes along and suddenly there's a whole new industry trying to, you know, worm their way into the college market because they know that you start these habits with students when they're as young as 17 or 18, you might have them for a lifetime. And but the fact that there are these gambling companies making deals with company, with colleges to uh, encourage students to use those services is, was pretty startling to me. And yeah, it was kind of a, just a startling Supreme Court ruling to just sort of let sports betting open wide. Outside of education, it actually seems like one of the big, most visible things that you see now, right? I'm very dismayed at all that, but just not that I'm a prude about gambling, whatever, but it just seems like it's not that great for society. Um and then to just so they'll see it in like the college cultures, like, you know, the time and that story just really nailed it. You know, when you're on your tour, your campus tour, the college probably isn't going to tell you about the fact that they've just made this relationship with a gambling company that's going to try to, you know, encourage help that company, you know, encourage your student to start gambling away some of the money that, you know, your family has put together to pay for their college education. Well, you know, if you place your bets right, you know, you can graduate loan free. I mean, I, I suppose that's the deal. Linda, something that you wish you had written or that you thought was fantastic? Sure. Yeah. The um, New York Times did a story on 
homeless students in rural America. And the story really resonated with me because it's a topic that I've tried to write about, you know, by phone and Zoom and email, you know, but really seeing the conditions that families live in, touching what they touch and and, and being in, in that, you know, nothing can replace that. And the issue during the pandemic of the homeless numbers going down when people who work with those families knew that that the numbers weren't really going down, that, you know, they were part of the missing kids, you know, that districts lost track with and didn't have, you know, any way to, to stay in touch with. And so that, to me, was very dramatic, well done, very detailed, you know, story. All right. Laura? Um, I will say... Emily Hanford's uh, Sold a Story podcast, which looks at the science of reading and kind of how everybody's doing it all wrong. Um, I thought that was was really well done. And, and while it's not, you know, there's not necessarily a universal agreement on which her point of view, I think it was an important conversation to be having because it really does, you know, far more than most of what we're talking about affect like large, large numbers of students. Yeah, man, I will say, Laura, that when the credits rolled and the kids read the credits on that podcast about kids learning to read, I just thought that that was sort of bringing a little bit of art to a podcast that really stuck the landing. Let me ask about the biggest changes that we've seen to the education landscape this year. I mean, Goldie, you mentioned about the place of uh, sports gambling companies and colleges and so forth. We've had this year, it's mainly been sort of focused on getting sort of back to normal, whatever that means after the pandemic. What are some big stories that you think speak to really kind of fundamental changes or departures from what we've been used to seeing in the education landscape? Goldie? I'd say this one is, it's not like it's now universal, but I think there's been obviously a lot more acceptance of online education, both from students and from institutions. A lot more institutions are looking to online education now as the option that their students want. So they're offering it more because they see it as an enrollment opportunity for them. I think obviously during COVID, people got a little bit more familiar and comfortable with online education and not just in the classroom, but people want more online services from colleges. And I don't know what I would call that a revolution yet at this point, but every college now has to sort of think about online education and online services in a different way. And that means providing it in much more robust forms. I think it was Michael Felstein, the blogger, who says it's like become, you know, online service has become the uh, the climbing wall of 2020, you know, the 2020s. You know, people have to, you can't not have online services at this point and a lot more hybrid classes as well. Laura? You know, I thought, thought about this question. I'm not really sure that I see like a huge transformation on the K-12 level. Um, uh, maybe Linda will have something better to say about this. Um, it, it feels to me like this was more of like a recovery kind of year where no one was really trying to do anything that much different, but more like just trying to get back to something approaching normal. I mean, there has been an effort and, you know, helping students catch up through, say, intensive tutoring and things like that. So that has certainly 
affected some kids. Um, I don't know if I would say that has changed the landscape. And then I'll go back to that political piece in certain communities, the very hot debates over book banning and things like that has changed what the conversation is in a, on the local level about schools. That's not everywhere, but it certainly is some places. But I don't know if I would necessarily say either one of those is like fundamentally changing the way we do school. Fair enough. Can I roll back? I mean, I actually want to add a little bit about the, I don't cover so much about the political debates about um, diversity and equity and um, I don't know if we call it PC, whatever we're calling it these days, but I feel like that's definitely infiltrating higher education in a, in a stronger way. And there's been a lot, I think there's been a lot more pressure on faculty members um, to watch what they say. And there's been like a little bit of a pushback on the right against faculty members speaking out against topics about racial tolerance and things like that. You see it in Texas, you see it in Florida, you see it in Idaho. Um, And it's not nationwide and it's not completely everywhere, but I think there are a lot more professors right now who feel like they're a lot less free to not just give their opinions, but to teach, to teach frankly about what's happening in, you know, to teach history, frankly, to teach sociology, frankly, than there were before. So it happens at the higher ed level too, in a very real way. Linda? Changes to the landscape? I would say enrollment loss and enrollment shifts um, affecting large urban districts. You know, we've seen places like Chicago fall out of its, you know, longtime third spot in the country as far as enrollment size. Um, Looking at where are those kids going? You know, the, the demand for virtual charters, you know, we continue to see in some states you know, smaller districts that are now seeing double-digit enrollment increases, you know, it, it does kind of shift your attention to, for local reporters, I, I imagine, you know, which district am I, you know, really following now? And, you know, just that's a that's a long-term impact, you know, and, and even the growth that some districts have recouped, you know, hasn't, you know, hasn't made up for the loss that, that we've seen. And that obviously leads to financial issues and, you know, discussions over school closures. So I, I think that is something to continue pay attention to. Near and dear to my heart, Linda. I know it we, is. I know it is. <laughs> on that and and with, with Laura as well. Um, let me ask sort of an insider's question. As a reporter that focuses on education, what is it that the public sort of wants? What can you tell us about us that we may not realize? Laura? Well, if you're talking, I mean, it really depends on what kind of an audience you're talking about, you know, because there are a lot of different types of audiences. I mean, if you're talking about parents who have kids who are struggling or who um, you know, have a particular problem, they want to hear about how, you know, solutions journalism, they want to hear about what's, you know, what's confronting their particular school district, how they're dealing with it, that kind of thing. I mean, if you're talking about a broader public I think a lot of stuff gets, you know, I, I'm probably the one who covers the politics of this the most here. And I, so I do see a lot of these things through a political lens. And I see a lot of stories that get a lot of traction that are political because they get, and this could be a higher ed or a, a K-12 setting, you know, get filtered through all of our political views about what's happening. Obviously, it wasn't so much this year, more last year, the critical race theory debate, but that would be a perfect example of that. You know, people were interested in that, not so much because they care so much about schools, but because they care about race or they care about politics and that people fit into their 
into their camps. Does that just fall under the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads category where you just have conflict and you have something sort of on display and, and that's why it gets so much pickup? Or is that phrase anathema among the actual reporters? Well, I don't know if it's anathema, maybe a, a bit cliched. Um, t- technically, you know, we don't have a, a ton of actual bleeding. Um, obviously, that's like a phrase that goes to like crime reporting. But yes, there is, I think that there is a, a, a part of it that when you write something that falls into our very polarized political debate, you know, it is a little bit of clickbaity for people on either side, like, see, I told you, or isn't this outrageous, or look at them go again. I think that there is a lot of that that happens. On the other hand, there is there are like real world impacts on some of these things. So, you know, if you have a classroom where um, you're not allowed to have a pride flag anymore, and you're a gay student in that school, and you used to feel affirmed, and now you feel afraid, you know, does that not matter? You know, I think that does matter. So does that affect every every student in America? No, but it affects some. So I do think that I even though I do think that this is some of it is kind of like a little bit. I maybe I think you're say, saying essentially that's hyped. I mean, I think there may be some truth to some of that. But at the same time, I think there are real world implications of these things. And um, we need to always keep that in mind. Goldie? Yeah, um, I mean, our audience is to be, tends to be people, I mean, primarily people who work in higher ed. And I think the category of story that they, I don't know if they, I would say they like it, but the category of story that engages them the most is sort of the there but the grace of God goes goes I cat story. I, maybe I would call it the Oyve story. That, you know, oh God, I can't believe that happened to that place. I got to read that so I make sure it doesn't happen to us here. And often that's about leadership and about money. So those those are the ones that seem to really captivate our readers the most. Less so the consumer one, just because I think it's a step removed from what they're dealing with in day to day. They worry about what, you know, student loan, student debt, things like that. But it's not that's not their day to day concern as much as it is they're running their own institutions. Absolutely. Linda, the 74 is a little bit different. It's just a publication that has a particular focus on education and so forth. How about for you all? What is that that your audience particularly seems thirsty for? And our audience is pretty diverse. I mean, we definitely have people who are sort of insiders who, you know, follow education policy, but we have a more mainstream, you know, mainstream readers as, as well. I, you know, I think from my perspective, the stories that have done really well and, you know, seem to get a lot of traction are are those that put students and families' voices and experiences, you know, more at the center of the story and, you know, trying to explain, you know, whether it's the impact of the pandemic or a certain policy, you know, just really down at the classroom and, and family level, you know, the impact of these things. There's been a lot of discussion about teacher shortages and how teachers are burnt out and how teachers are feeling the pressure of the political machinations going on at the school board or over books or curriculum. There's certainly a lot of this. You see a lot of coverage of this. How do you balance 
that, right? I mean, Laura, when you were talking about it, you were saying, well, this doesn't happen everywhere. And of course, when it doesn't happen, it doesn't really get covered (laughs) because that's the nature of reporting. You report on what happens. But let me just ask you in that particular case, and Goldie, if there's an analog in higher ed, I'd love to hear about that. But how should readers be sensitive to how these highlights sort of frame our sense of what's going on when it's an uneven event. I mean, again, just thinking about how burnout are teachers, it can be hard to gauge. What advice would you give readers? No one story reflects the reality of all of America, and nobody should expect that it does. Good stories are good stories, things that are interesting, that, things that take you somewhere you couldn't go on your own, something that makes you think, something that makes you sad, makes you mad, makes you happy. Any of those things can be a good story. A good story is something that takes you, that helps to explain the world to you. That doesn't mean that a good story is something that explains every aspect of the world and applies to every single teacher, student, what have you across the country at any given time. It doesn't. Hopefully with time, when all of these pieces that we're all contributing to this coverage puzzle, we help paint a a fair um, look at the world as a whole. But since um, you offered a cliche earlier, I'll offer you a, another like journalism cliche. You know, we don't write about it when planes land safely. So, you know, most planes land safely. And and that's true. Hopefully in education, we have a lot of planes landing safely as well. So if that's what you're getting at is that you have teachers who aren't burned out. There's plenty of happy teachers. You've got, te- oh, man, I don't know. Are there plenty? Not <laughs> about plenty. There are happy teachers. Um, you know, there are teachers, there are, there are students who are free to read any book they like, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, of course, of course. And sometimes we bring those stories to people too, but it isn't our job to do that with each and every story and no one should expect it. Goldie or Linda, anything to add? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, some of these surveys about teachers being ready to walk off the job or, you know, I'm not going to come back next year. You know, 10 years ago, you might have seen the same answers. You know, it's just that now we have this context of the pandemic that we had never lived through before, you know, so it made everything seem on the edge, you know, more than normal. And I was going to say, sometimes a story can be another cliche, a canary in a coal mine kind of a thing. It's one story. It could it seemed like an isolated incident. And increasingly, though, the way our society gets connected and maybe the way some of these forces are working behind the scenes to kind of foment a lot of, you know, acrimony and controversy in places, you know, we used to joke at the Chronicle that three three events equal a trend. Some cases that's still true, but sometimes states look at each other, districts look at each other, colleges look at each other, and two or three, you know, something might be happening seemingly in isolation at one or two campuses. And because of the way social media works today and because of the way, you know, some of these other networks are also working behind the scenes, some of this stuff can spread pretty quickly. So there is a risk of, you know, overemphasizing something that seems like an isolated case, there's an equal risk in not paying enough attention to it and then suddenly discovering that it's actually happening in a lot of places and you don't cover it. Great way to put it. And I've learned over the years as a reporter that often, you know, we're just seeing the little tip of a tip of the iceberg in so many cases. I think it's probably more often that there's more of it more than we think than there's less of it than we think. So not always, obviously, there are isolated instances, there's weird cases and all the rest, but that's just an instinct. So 
Goldie, you brought up social media, but I'm curious about sort of like how Twitter influences education journalism. It seems like it's somewhat in play in a lot of journalists sort of playbook and way to um, sort of amplify their work. It's certainly how a lot of people share things. Does that matter on the education beat much? Not really. I mean, how big of a factor is Twitter in particular on this? I mean, in higher ed, I feel like it's pretty big. There's EDU Twitter. I don't think we call it higher ed Twitter, but we do call it EDU Twitter. I've met a lot of people along the way and a lot of sources have made connections with each other. I think a lot of people are very alarmed at the fact that we might not have this vehicle to learn about learn about things from each other, to see studies and things like that. I think it got amplified a lot during COVID, certainly because people weren't going to going to conferences and weren't they weren't seeing each other in the usual places. And so Twitter actually became really the, the platform for people to really share a lot of information in the last two years. And I think there's a lot of distress about whether that platform will continue right now, you know, as a place, a safe place for people to share ideas and go back and forth with each other. I mean, some of it's insider and silly too, I have to admit, but, um, and that can be a little bit annoying almost, but I think that social media does make a big difference from Twitter in particular in higher ed. I follow some of you guys on K-12 as well, but I'm not as familiar with how it works there. Linda? I get a lot of ideas from, from Twitter and, and sometimes, you know, an interesting thread plays into, you know, the reporting. I've certainly watched to see, you know, are people leaving? Uh, those who say they're leaving still seem to be there. Um they say it over and over. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, sometimes a, a source that won't return my call, you know, they've tweeted something, you know, and, and that is still a, a, a vehicle into what people are saying about something. But I definitely get ideas there. And, you know, sometimes it's the first I've seen of something and, and you know, might be a future story, you know. I was also going to say, though, it, it can be distorting as well. And I hope with or without Twitter, I hope it doesn't keep us all from and my colleagues around the country from going to schools and campuses because Twitter becomes its own little lens and it's not always Absolutely. A, it, it yeah. can be a very imperfect lens. I, I would say that Twitter is a very good reporting tool. I don't think it's necessarily a great way to get your work out to the public. I, I think that that's kind of overstated. But I think as a reporting tool for finding people and hearing what people are talking about, it's it's very useful. Right. It's interesting because before Elon bought it, it seemed like a lot of people were kind of pro Twitter. And my attitude was like, eh, it's OK, but n not all that positive. And now now, there are, now there's so many people that can't stand it. And I'm kind of like, well, it's not that bad, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like I've moved. I feel like the, the world has uh, shifted on it. Um, okay. So usually on the podcast, we do a section called Grade It, but we are not doing Grade It because everybody's on break this week. I mean, it's Christmas break. But instead, for the year in review, we're going to do a section called Overreported or Underreported. Uh, here we go. Goldie, student loan forgiveness. Uh, properly reported. All right. Let me ask you one to match that one. The income-driven repayment changes that Biden proposed this summer. Oh, I'll go underreported, definitely. Because it's going to affect a lot of people. It's much more complex, and I think people couldn't figure out how to cover it. It was too hard to explain in a few sentences and a few headlines. But it could effectively become you know, income-based repayment for so many more students around the, you know, around the country. It could really kind of change the dynamic in student loans. I agree with you. The dollar figure associated with it, too, is ginormous. Laura. 
Nape scores. Oh, I would say probably overreported in the sense that there's a lot of attention on this one indicator when, as, uh, as you know, there are many indicators out there and it, it is, I guess it has its use. Does anybody call it the nation's report card besides the people who actually produce it and reporters who write about it? I don't know, but I, I mean, it is a useful, important tool, but it gets like mandatory coverage whenever it comes out. Whereas a lot of other things struggle. So. They got that name from this podcast, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Linda, the actual pace of academic recovery. I would say underreported. You know, people try to latch on to little signs of, of growth, but there are experts out there saying it could be, you know, five to 10 years, you know, before we see kids back on a path that they were, you know, before the pandemic. And it's it's a vast topic. One, one area that I think I don't know enough about yet is, is how high school students are doing. I mean, you know, NAEP is just fourth and eighth grade. You know, we've seen some of the biggest chronic absenteeism numbers in, in, in high school. You know, we were able to look at some enrollment data that showed large numbers of kids in ninth grade were repeating, should have been in 10th grade. I looked at some numbers recently that looks like now we're seeing that spike in 10th grade. So I don't think we have enough of a handle on um, how high school students are doing. Laura, the teacher shortage or the coming teacher shortage, however you want to phrase it. (laughs) Oh, I guess that's, I guess you're just teeing me up for overreported. I know (laughs) you and your ways. Um, so totally I, guess, I guess I feel like this this lightning rod should be. Does Nat think this is under or over reported? Not, not at all. <laughs> They're not even present here. <laughs> uh, I feel like I could do well on that test. Um, I, I I guess I would say I don't really fancy myself a education media critic, so I don't really know. But. If I had to guess, I might say maybe slightly overreported in the sense that there was so much hype around it and stir stir around it. And I think we found that there is some truth to it, but it's, you know, some of its normal shortages and some of its accelerated shortages. And it's not really necessarily the crisis that, in fact, when the, the, the federal numbers just came out recently on this and it showed like most schools have a shortage, but the numbers are small. Like the average school is like one teacher short. So, I mean, obviously that's not great, but uh, especially if that's, you know, the class you're supposed to be in, but it's not quite, you know, Armageddon. So I'll, I'll settle into to overreported. All right. So I'm going to break in here because I never do this, but my take on it is the actual teacher shortage overreported. Yeah. The problem that teachers actually face over the past couple of years in schools may be underreported. And when they cast it like, oh, it's a hiring problem, kind of like that might be beside the point. Anyway, my brief editorializing. Goldie, the fall of the U.S. news rankings. Oh, I'm so bored with that story. Um, But I mean, I know Um, I'm going to say overreported because most students in America don't go to those colleges that are on the top in, in those top ranks. I mean, they matter to a small slice of the country and they don't probably matter to, you know, five or six million undergrads every year. So I don't know. That number's not quite right, but. Oh, definitely overreported. Linda, 
K-12 student mental health? Probably about the right amount, I, I, I would think. I mean, you know, there are signs that it's still, you know, a major issue in a, in a lot of places for a lot of families. I don't know if we understand enough about how districts are responding to it or if they have the right response to it. You know, they're opening sort of mental health rooms and buying stress balls. And, yeah, I mean, you know, what what should the response be? And, you know, I think that deserves a little more attention. Laura, school board politics, and if you want to get specific on it, the San Francisco school board recall. Huh. Um, I would say that school board politics, you know, I mean, I think it did get some attention. I think rightfully so. It feels like maybe about right. I don't know that it needed a lot more. I think the San Francisco results actually didn't get a lot of attention and there had been a lot more attention in the earlier stages of their saga. So maybe that was a little bit underreported. Overall, I mean, truthfully, I feel like I could have a full-time job just covering education in San Francisco. That place is like the gift that keeps on giving to a reporter. So um, there's only so many stories the Washington Post wants to you know, run about education in San Francisco. Um, but I do personally find it kind of fascinating. Well, let's stay in California. Goldie, how about higher ed staffing challenges and labor strikes? Uh, I have to sort of see what this final contract looks like out of the University of California, but it feels like that has the potential to maybe radically change the way grad students are paid all around the country. So I'm going to say at least at this point underreported because I'm not, other than the fact that the grad students were on the picket lines, that part got reported a lot, but what they wanted and the implications of that has not yet been reported Adequate, you know, it hasn't been completely reported yet because we don't really know what the final details of that look like. But I think once we know that, that could be a story with huge implications for research universities around the country. I'll take it as underreported. Linda, this goes back to early part of the year, but masking in schools. Overreported. <laughs> Just, you know, the minutia of required, not required. There was some coverage of, you know, every single time there was a change. I mean, I know locally you needed to communicate with families, but I think the world got tired of of that. (laughs) Laura, school use of federal COVID recovery funds. So that's an interesting one. In some level, it's underreported because it's an important story and it really needs to be told. On the other hand, it's very hard to do in terms of actually knowing. There is some data out there, but it's limited And so there are limits to how to do it well. And I personally found the stories that gave like aggregate numbers, like based on the the Georgetown calculations or others to be not that interesting. So I think it really, we need to do some thinking about how to do that story more creatively, but I do think it's an important story. So I'll probably say underreported. Can I answer that for higher ed? Go for it. I'm going to say underreported. That money has been propping up a lot of colleges in a lot of really hard to follow ways. I mean, not underreported by by fault, but just hard to cover in the same way. But I think when the money runs out, we're going to see a huge fallout in the number of colleges and the financial impact on a number of colleges. Book bans in K-12 districts. Laura, do you have a take? 
overall, maybe a little too much, but more or less, but not massively so, partly because it really interests people. So you can sit here and say, you shouldn't care about this. What you really should care about is COVID recovery spending. But like, you can't make people read about things they don't aren't interested in. They're interested in this. And like I said, for the same reasons I made about, talked about like a pride flag in school. I mean, even more so, you know, this does affect people and it does matter. And it's a statement of our values and that matters too. And it has implications for politics, not just school board politics, but gubernatorial races, maybe presidential races. So it is something that matters. And even though I know that this is another one that Nat, you would be on the overcovered, I suspect, but I do think that it may be a little bit, but, but not massively so. I want to vote undercovered even because it's America and it's 2023, almost 2023. And we're talking about banning books. I don't think that's really healthy for American democracy. Well, the one thing I would just add is that it could become even more interesting because the federal government is now investigating a district that uh, removed books related to LGBTQ students uh, from its library. So that kind of takes it to a new level. Mm-hmm. Interesting. To get my take on that, you'll have to have me on one of your podcasts. <laughs> and the last one, the last one definitely betrays some of my thoughts, but I want all of you to weigh in on it if you uh, don't mind, because it applies a little differently, maybe. The impact that cell phones and ubiquitous technology is having on students in schools. Linda? I would say, you know, not over or under reported. I, I know that teachers often see it as a distraction, but I, I think there's a real tension with parents because, you know, parents are used to being able to contact their child at, you know, any time of the day, you know, and that's sort of changing norms. So uh, I think some of that is not so much about the kids' reliance on it, but but even the parents' reliance, you know, on their kids having the phone. Goldie? Um, I think the ubiquity question isn't such a big deal in higher ed. I think that's pretty clear. I think the bigger question is broadband access, and it's not there's still a digital divide on that, and that, that's got big implications for students' success. And so I would say the digital divide piece of that is still somewhat underreported. Laura? I actually, I, I kind of, I hadn't really thought that much about it before you mentioned it, which may be a sign of undercover. And I, I actually do think it probably is undercover. When I've gone into schools and I see kids wearing earbuds during class, I'm like personally kind of shocked by that. Like, I can't believe that students are allowed to do that. And like, who knows what they're listening to? And that combined with the fact that that during the pandemic, everyone got even more screen addicted than they were before. In you know, and like if parents need feel the need to reach their kids all the time, maybe that they need some limits set on them, just like we set limits on our children. And I haven't thought deeply about it, but I, I, I suspect there is probably more that we could say about that. All right. Well, thank you all three for playing the first round of underreported, overreported. Let's look forward for a minute. What do you think are some of the biggest stories or most interesting figures for us to watch over the coming year? It's just around the corner. So there's no excuse for not having scintillating answers to this question. Goldie, can we start with you? Yeah, I've got two. Um, Obviously, the Supreme Court on the student loan forgiveness, but much more importantly on um, affirmative action and 
race-based admissions because we know from history where when affirmative action is prohibited in states, enrollment of minority students goes down. So watching what the court does on that case, on this affirmative action case, will be huge. The other story I'm going to be really watching this next year is um, not just the mergers and the colleges closing, which are very easy, not easy to follow, but they, you know they're a little more visible, but the death by a thousand cuts at a lot of colleges, institutions that are cutting back programs, eliminating majors, doing some of that other kind of stuff, you know, for financial reasons, and it leading to a little bit of a hollowing out of higher ed and a lot of the, a lot of the have not places compared to the have places that are going along swimmingly right now. Goldie, when you compare these two Supreme Court cases, to the typical higher ed, Supreme Court-related caseloads, this is kind of a banner year. Is that right? I mean, it feels like two big ones. Although, I mean, there have been there was a big sports case several years ago about paying student-athletes. I mean, so there have been other cases like this year, but these the, the student loan thing affects 40 million people. The race-based admission affects probably all of higher ed in a very profound way. I think you can't underestimate the impact of the affirmative action case. I think that's going to be the most important one for higher ed this year. Linda, what's on the horizon? I would think that we'll start to hear more about not just whether the ESSER, the federal relief funds are, are being spent, but what difference they're making. Uh, maybe, you know, a closer evaluation of, you know, what recovery efforts are, are really working and maybe should be held on to uh, when the money runs out. I know districts are beginning to, to talk about those kinds of things. Um, and then just like Goldie said, you know, some of these funds are propping up universities. I mean, there's districts that are relying on them to pay staff. And will we hear more conversation around fiscal cliff, you know? Yeah, it's a definitely interesting because on the one hand, fiscal cliff is all the closer. And on the other hand, they're spending at a higher rate than they have yet. So uh, there's kind of a lot to keep track of. And uh, we'll appreciate it if you do it for us. Laura, what's on your horizon? I'm going to spend all year writing about the U.S. News and World Report rankings. Just kidding. Although I will say that I thought that was kind of interesting that Goldie said that she thinks that this, she's so sick of it and doesn't have any interest. Like I eat that stuff up as someone who's not covering it as just a reader. I, <laughs> I, I find those rankings so irritating that I like just like salivate at the prospect of them dying, uh, hopefully quick and painful death. But anyway, the answer to your question, I actually um, am in a similar place to where Linda is. I do still think that we, the COVID recovery is still the big story and will advance and, and both in terms of academic and mental health. Um, I think that, I know those don't sound new or sexy, but I do think that those are where we're going to have to keep our focus, keep um, our attention. So, you know, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add that I haven't already said on that. I think on the politics front, it will be, you know, we will still see things, see, still see action, but maybe I'm kind of curious whether it sort of builds steam as we head closer to the 2024 presidential race or whether it starts to kind of uh, wane a bit. Um, and I, I don't know, but I'll be kind of watching to see if this is something sort of the new normal or if this was just a bit of a spike and then people move on to something else. And one more thing that I am looking for in the coming year, and this is sort of um, just really taken off in the last few weeks, which is the advent of this chat GPT software, which if you haven't played with it, 
It is a mind-blowing experience, this artificial intelligence where you can put a question in and it will pop out a a five-paragraph essay of sorts that is not great, but is not terrible. And um, there's a lot of concern about the potential for cheating in this, that people will uh, just essentially be turning these things in. It's not plagiarism per se, in its traditional sense, but because it, it's not like you're cutting and pasting it from something previously published. It was created just for you, but it is um, obviously not doing the work yourself. There are a lot of teachers and professors who are talking about the upsides and how can we use this as a tool. And this is to writing what the calculator is to math and we shouldn't fear it. And I think that there is um, some truth to that. But I think it's also going to be a huge problem. I have a 13-year-old eighth grader, and I hope to living God he does not find out about this thing. In fact, I'm not letting him listen to this podcast because although, but because I, I fear writing's really hard for him, and I think it would be tempting. Now, of course, the idea that you're going to keep this out of the knowledge of 13-year-old and 14-year-old and 15-year-old kids is is probably pretty naive. So um, they're going to find out about it. So I, I do think that this is something that will be interesting to see how it unfolds, both whether it really gets used a lot, how well um, the software companies are that are saying that they're going to try to come up with new ways to stop it, as well as how academia responds to it, both in, in you know middle and high school levels and in higher ed. Well, Laura, I have a similar age a child, and I just want you to know that we can take comfort in the fact that children are slow adopters to new technology. So um, <laughs> I think it's not going to be a problem. I'm going to take comfort in the fact that my child is a slow adopter to this podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Three things we'll be looking for in the coming year on the education front. And next year, about this time, maybe we'll have you guys back on to uh, look at those things in review. Thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having us, Nat. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Laura Meckler, Linda Jacobson, and Goldie Blumenstick. We'll include a link to some of their work and the work they've highlighted in the show notes. You can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take one minute and leave us a review. That helps other people find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to us at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this year. I'm Nat Malkus. 